This is a first sermon in uh, a month of Easter, and uh, if you weren't here last week when I explained, this is going to be fairly simple. Uh, we are going to look at the resurrection leading up until Easter Day, looking at how the resurrection changes several things. Today we're going to look at how the resurrection changes your past, how it affects your past. Next week we'll look at how it affects your future, and then on Easter Sunday we'll look at how the resurrection affects the present. And so today, I want to get into that. We're going to do that by uh, uh, reading Romans chapter 4, verse 18 through 25. So if you would, turn with me to the the book of Romans, and we'll start halfway through Romans chapter 4, how the resurrection affects your past. Romans chapter 4, verse 18 through 25. As you're turning there, I'm just going to start from, uh, from verse 18, read through the whole thing, and then we'll back up and just start taking it piece by piece So we look at what the good news of the resurrection means for you and me right now. This is what the Apostle Paul said as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's talking right here about Abraham. It says, in hope... He believed against hope, speaking of Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believed in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with our scriptures opened, our minds opened, asking that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive. We ask that even as we are slowing down, as is typical in this part of the year, slowing down to reflect on the greatest event in world history, the rising from the dead of the Son of God, we pray that you would slow our minds down for a moment to contemplate, to reflect to anticipate, to be excited over, and to be changed by the gospel of of Jesus Christ. We ask that as we start in this place, you would open up our lives to you, even the things that we're hiding, even the things that we have suppressed, the things that uh, we care not to think about, our mistakes, our sins, our tragedies, our uh, our mishaps, things that we have done wrong to others, the things that have been done wrong towards us, and we pray that those things would be laid bare at the foot of the cross and life would be breathed into them even as life was breathed into your mortal body. We just pray for life, Lord, that you would come in here, you would bring dead bones to life, you would bring broken hearts to life, you would bring messed up minds to life, you would bring healing to places that need healing. You would bring light to places that are dark and that you would resurrect us by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
We honor your word today. We know that everything that you have to say is good and necessary and powerful and sufficient. And so we honor it today in the name of Jesus by saying ahead of time what you have said. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be done in your church today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you for uh, the next few minutes about your past and how the resurrection affects your past. In this room are represented a variety of people, and I don't know what your past is, but I'm uh, willing to bet that you've got one. And it might look different for you depending on where you've been, how long you have lived, what your life has looked like, but there might be some of you in this room who definitely have a past, if you know what I mean. You have a visible, tangible, messed up past that's open to scrutiny. Perhaps it's a source of shame and guilt and embarrassment to you, and you're in this building preferring not to remember some of those things that you used to do and live. For some of you, the past is obvious, but then there might be a group of other people in this room that doesn't really have a past, or at least you you tell yourself that. If you were to look at your past 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or whatever it is, you might actually be tempted to look back on it and say, you know what? I lived a pretty normal and decent life. There were a, little mis- a few mistakes I made along the way, but uh, generally speaking, especially when I compare myself to that guy, I did pretty good. <clears throat> but if you were to give it some thought, which you rarely do, you would say if others were able to look past the veneer that I set up every Sunday into some of the things that I've done, some of the things that I've thought, some of the things that I continue to do and think, I would be embarrassed if people only knew. And so in this room, there might be people with an obvious past, and there might be people in this room that just haven't figured it out yet. But we have left behind us a trail of mistakes. And for some of you, maybe you're already experiencing that shame. Maybe you're asking yourself, Is there any way that I can do away with some of those things? Is there any way that I can make some of those things right to be accepted by the people that are sitting next to me? Maybe you've even gone deeper in your questioning to say, is there anything I can do to find myself acceptable before God? Does God even still want me? Perhaps you want so badly to be loved and accepted by other people so badly to be loved and accepted by God that you will and are working endlessly for it. Maybe that's why you're at church today. Because it's just one in a string of reasons and things that you've, you've marked down uh, in your mind to say, if I do this and that and this and the other, then I will be acceptable before God and acceptable before God's people. Perhaps you're working to present yourself as an acceptable person trying to make God happy with you. My, da- my uh, daughter, Abby, is a three and a half years old, and uh, she is in this particular season of her life where she, she wants everyone and everything to be happy all the time. 
And, you know, as kids do, they'll sometimes throw tantrums or think they'll, they'll have a meltdown, and Abby is no different than any other kid in that, except at the, the season in life where she is, like the, the meltdowns that she experiences can be for anything. It could be like, I spilled a drop of milk on the counter, or my sticker fell off my clothes, or I can't tie my shoe. Just like instant meltdown, from cute and laughing to instant meltdown. And recently, she started saying these things to uh, Brianna and I. As she's melting down, she's like looking at us with crocodile tears coming out of her face, just throb, like her bottom lip is starting to quiver, you know, that like deep sadness and cry. And she's looking at us going, I'm not happy, Mom, Dad, I'm not happy. How are you going to make me happy right now? And she's like negotiating with us about how to make her uh, not cry. And we're like, we're just at a loss for words. We're like, you're the one who said, like, you do, I, I don't know how to fix this. Well, there's been, uh, recently, she actually turned this phrase that she likes to use on us, uh, actually on us, and there was a recent example where I was, uh, something had happened to me, I was a little bummed by it, but it wasn't the end of the world, I was just like thinking deeply about something, trying to fix a problem. She walks up to me and she goes, Daddy, are you happy? Well, no, not really, and she's all, but dad, you're supposed to be happy in the crocodile tears and the fountain of sadness and she's on the ground just beating the floor going, you have to be happy. How can I make you happy? I'm like, I don't, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> Maybe some of you are in this building right now knocking on the door saying a similar question. How do I make God happy? And the reason I want to bring up Romans 4 is because in Abraham's day, people were asking a question not too different than that, except they were looking to a guy that they figured had it all together. They were looking to Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. And Abraham was the picture-perfect Hebrew man, the picture-perfect, the poster child for someone who has made it into the arms of God, who has made it into God's favor. He was the one that everyone looked to. He was the one that did everything right. He was uh, the one that everyone modeled their life on. And they would look at Abraham and say, if we just live that way, perhaps we too can, uh, can get into God's good graces, become acceptable, uh, acceptable to God. And the greatest thing in Abraham's day of the list of things that you could do to be righteous was circumcision. And so people would argue, if we just, that, you know, there are a list of things that we need to do. If we just do that, we'll get in. It was, the big, it was like the crowning achievement of righteousness. And Paul writes Romans chapter 4 to kind of put an end to that type of myth. In fact, he says, yeah, Abraham was circumcised and he had his, his son circumcised. But it was actually the blessing of God came upon Abraham before that even happened. It wasn't something that Abraham did that made God happy. It was something that was already, uh, already in existence. And Paul then begins to explain Abraham's story by way of comparison to teach us how we can experience a happy God. I want to look at this text with you today in the minutes that I have to show you at least three things. One, Abraham's happy God. I want to show you that. Two, I want to show you why God isn't always happy. And three, I want to show you how to, how to experience the happiness of God. Here's what I'm saying when I say Abraham's happy God. Paul immediately goes into Abraham's story and says, hey, this is what happened. 
In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In other words, there was this promise all the way back in Genesis, you shall have a son. But it wasn't just a promise to have a kid. Uh, Wrapped up in this promise from God to Abraham was an entire story that he was inviting Abraham into. We've talked about this before when we spoke about the story of God, but when God in Genesis gave what we call today the the covenant of Abraham or the blessing to Abraham, there were three major things in that promise uh, that God was getting at. He was promising that there would be a people that would be his, that those people would be in God's place, and in that place they would be under God's rule. That's what we can summarize as the, the blessing of Abraham. The kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That is as good as it gets. So when God is giving that promise to Abraham, he's saying, I want you to be, I want to accept you. I want to receive you. I want to give you all that is mine. I want to bless you. I want to invite you into my kingdom. And people are looking back on that scene, Hebrews and Jesus' day, going, what did Abraham do to deserve all of that? If we could just mimic that and copy it, we'll be in the kingdom too. Oh, start with circumcision. Paul says, no, he got the blessing before God ever even spoke to him about that. Well, maybe if we obey all the law. No, the law wasn't even in existence until Moses He says, this is the secret. In hope, he believed against hope. That's kind of an awkward uh, series of words, but that, word, uh, that phrase against hope can just mean uh, contrary uh, to what you would normally put your hope in. I love how the NLT uh, uh, translates that particular sentence. It says, even when there was no reason to hope, Abraham kept hoping. In other words, Abraham was facing something that was not humanly possible for him uh, uh, to, to be victorious over. He was reaching a point in his life where there was a dead end. There was no humanly way possible that Abraham and all of his gifts and talents could have done anything to get himself out of the situation that he was in. What situation? Barrenness. And look at the words that Paul strategically uses to speak about death. Sarah, her womb was barren. There was no life available. Abraham might as well have been dead if we're speaking about having kids. He was almost 100 years old. He keeps using this analogy of death and age and barrenness to prove a point that Abraham had to get to a place in his life where he hit a dead end. There is literally, if I could put myself in Abraham's shoes, there is literally nothing I could do to save myself from the situation I'm in. I've hit a dead end. The situation I'm in is not humanly possible for me to get myself out of unless someone from the outside intervenes into my situation. I can't do this on my own. There's anything that you take from this first section of Romans 4 is that the start of a good relationship with God is hitting a dead end. I can't do this by myself. This section of Romans 4, the story of Abraham, is an utter challenge to your sense of independence. We Santa Barbarans who love to do everything by ourselves. Or maybe it's a Californian thing, or maybe it's an American thing, but whatever it is, it's a thing. 
We love to do things on our own. We love the clout. We love the approval. We love the recognition. We love pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. Even if 90% of our success is help, we hang on to that other 10% like it's our own life. We are an independent people. We want, to come, uh, we want uh, our own voice and our own life. We want to carve our own path. We want to be true to ourselves. This is an utter dead-end stop to that story that our culture writes for us. You are not independent, and you weren't created to be independent. You were created to be dependent on a greater source. The salient point of this section in Romans and that story in Genesis is that Abe, contrary to what uh, modern-day Hebrews would have thought, uh, 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 at least in Jesus' day, Abraham, who is a picture-perfect poster boy for righteousness, Abe couldn't even meet God halfway. God was promising all of this good news through a single child. Abe couldn't even give him a child. Only tried once, and it was a an utter mistake. Abe couldn't even meet God halfway. God had to meet him the full way. That's the point. In this dead end, we see that the object of Abraham's faith wasn't his own, uh, wasn't his own faith. It wasn't like he was putting his faith in his own faith. Like, I'm just going to believe, because if I believe hard enough, something will happen. The object of his faith is in verse 20 through 22. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Listen to this. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What is the object of Abraham's faith? God is able to do what he promised. There's absolutely no glimpse of Abraham's faith pointed in on himself. This is an utter desperation move. Starting place of Christianity. I can't do anything. And your eyes are turned towards a God who is able to do what he promised. In that next line, this, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul right there just gives us a definition of that faith. Fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Faith we can simply define as Trust. Faith in Scripture is simply trusting. As Abraham trusted that God was able to do what he promised and would do what he promised, we see that the object of of Abraham's faith here is God. And as soon as Abraham, for all of the other things going on in his life, places his trust in a God who is able, we're told that God counted his faith as righteousness. And all of a sudden, Abraham was in. For some of you, you perhaps have lived your entire life. Maybe you have a, a background in Christianity or churchianity or whatever you want to call it. But you might have a, a little baggage that you have picked up along the way that has said, if I do enough spiritual things, I will get a certain reward. And it could be anything. It could be if I, if I go to church and I'm involved in all the right things and I say all the right things and I do and think all the right things and I marry right and I have these kids and I do these certain, if I meet this list, then I'll be accepted either by God or by the people around me. 
If I do, if I do, if I do, if I accomplish, if I get, if I attain, if I achieve. And here in Romans 4, we're told that in God's kingdom, trust is the only currency. Bold-faced, dead-end trust in God. Reaching a place in your life where there is literally nothing left for you to do but put your faith in a God who is able. The point here is that there's nothing you can offer to God to make him more pleased with you than he is right now. And any effort to try to achieve that is simply your sense of independence screaming out a little bit. Well, I know we sang that song, uh, that song because he loves me, but I'm just going to add a little bit to my, uh, to my resume with God just to ensure that he loves me tomorrow. Well, he loves me because I do this. And he doesn't love me, you know, on Tuesday when I did that. But it's okay because Wednesday I'm going to right side uh, my sinking boat and then he'll love me again. Or we might, you know, because we've been inundated with so much gospel information, we might even think to ourselves, of course God loves me by grace through faith and nothing that I've done. But the way that we live speaks contrary to that. In God's kingdom, trust is currency. God didn't make you to be independent, to work for yourself. He made you to exist for him, and he simply asks people to trust in him. Trust him enough to follow him. Abraham did that, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I love verse 23, but the words it was credited to him or counted to him was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. See where Paul is getting at? It's not just telling a clever story. He's giving an analogy that he's about to apply to your lives. The truth is, God isn't always happy. He was happy with Abraham. In fact, the Apostle James would later tell us that he, would later tell us that he was considered to be a friend of God. Abraham was God's friend. Do you believe that? When you open up your Bibles on Monday or Tuesday morning or whatever it is, and you're reading through your Devo, trying to get through your three chapters for that day, does it ever dawn on you in that moment, I'm God's friend? Like, can I even say that about God? I'm God's friend. We're buddies. We're friends. Not to belittle his sense of holiness and reverence, but that, that's also true. You ever think about that? Can, is it possible for a human to be a friend of God? Abraham was a friend of God. And Paul goes around and says, the things that were said about Abraham was not just written for his sake alone, but for yours too. Think about that. God isn't always happy. In fact, Romans chapter 1 through 3, leading up to where we are right now, is a series of verses teaching about humans, uh, uh, teaching about people's deadness and sin and distance from God. It's Paul's argument from chapter 1 through chapter 3. Humanity is dead in their sin. They are far from God. They don't want to have anything to do with God. And even when they pretend to do righteous things, it's with wrong motives. So as he's arguing that all of humanity is dead in their sin, then he points a finger at uh, religious churchgoers and religious professionals and says, even those of you that think that you're righteous by works, you're just doing this for yourself. You're just doing this to look impressive. 
Apart from Christ, no one is righteous. And then he writes Romans chapter 4, and what is that? It's the same thing. It's just a picture, an analogy of people's deadness and sin and distance from God. The point over and over and over and over is that apart from God's intervention in your life, you are as dead in your sins as Abraham and Sarah were in their infertility. Apart from Christ, you are as hopeless in your sin as Abraham and Sarah were in their barrenness. Apart from Christ, you are as helplessness in your sin as Abraham was in his old age, hoping to have a kid. This is the point Paul is trying to drill down. And lest you think that Abraham did something that got him accepted by God, all of a sudden Paul hones in on the secret to a happy God. He says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, our past, and raised for our justification. Therein lies the secret of Abraham's good news and yours too. It had nothing to do with what you brought to church today. It had nothing to do with how deep your devotional life is. It has nothing to do with how many people you have evangelized, how much tithe you give, how faithful you are to God, what your church attendance and track record looks like, how well your family is doing right now. It has nothing to do with you. The secret of the gospel is Jesus who is delivered to die and raised for our justification. Let's talk about justification for a second. Justification is one of those words, it's like one of those long words that is in the Bible to describe like a dictionary amount of goodness. And I'm thankful for it because every time I run into the concept justification, I don't have to give you a dictionary definition of it. But I do have to explain it. Justification, if I could just make it simple, is to be made right with God. And it's assuming that we're not, right? Romans 1 through 3, we're not right with God. Apart from Christ... We're not right with God. Justification is the solution to that. It's the antidote. And for this to happen, there's actually two things that have to happen to a person. This is what justification entails. It, and it requires a couple things. One is the removal of your sin and the crediting of righteousness to your account. Now, this isn't something that Paul came up with. This has its roots all the way back in Leviticus, The book that we love to skip through when we're going through the one-year Bible reading, it's actually from that book. Don't skip it anymore. (laughs) Or just skip straight to Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus chapter 16, we have a really strange story where Aaron is offering a sacrifice for the people of God. God tells him to offer two different sacrifices, goats. One is called the goat, uh, the the goat is called the goat unto the Lord, and the other is called the, uh, the other goat, he calls Azalel. And Azalel is a difficult word to translate. Different uh, translations try their best at it. But essentially, uh, I th- uh, the King James Version, when it first came out hundreds of years ago, they actually coined a new word uh, to translate that particular word. They came up with the word scapegoat, which is where we get the word today. And it means what you think it means. To put the blame of someone else on another person. And so that's what this goat had as its function. This goat, uh, the, the priest would take this goat, 
the scapegoat, and he would put his hands on its head, and he would, in uh, a sense, attribute or put onto that goat all the iniquities or all the sins and transgressions of the people of Israel. And then he would send the goat out into the wilderness to get lost. And in that symbolism was the sense that our sin has to be removed from us. It has to be dealt with. God cannot just sweep our sin under the rug. It has to be removed far from us. And yet at the same time, there was another goat, and this was the goat under the Lord, that they would actually sacrifice for the purification of God's people. And so two things are happening. Sin is being removed and righteousness is being uh, credited. This is something scholars and theologians like to call double imputation. There is a removal of sin and a crediting of righteousness. By the time we get to the New Testament, Christ's death and resurrection is livid with this type of illusion. Hebrews 10 uh, 10, uh, verse 4 tells us that the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to remove our sin. It's only enough to cover them for a, a temporal period. In Isaiah 53, verse 11 through 12, we're told by the prophet that there would come a day where God would send a person who would bear the iniquities of God's people. He would bear their sin. By the time Jesus came in on the scene, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming from afar to be baptized. And in John chapter 1, verse 29, he looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He would later die. And in that moment in his death, as he was dying and breathing his last breath, Paul would later comment on that and explain what was exactly going on in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. It says that our sins, the things that we did wrong, our shame, our past, our guilt, our mistakes, our treason against God was being nailed to the cross apart from us. And so there you have the removal of sin. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are broke, homeless, and in a lot of credit card debt. And I'm about to give you some good news. I walk up to you and I say, you know, uh, I'm going to, for no other reason than I'm feeling like it, I'm going to pay off all of your debt. Let's say you have $10,000 worth of credit card debt. Pay off all of your debt. That would be, that would be awesome, right? Some of you are like, hey, sign me up. <laughs> That'd be good news. Now, you'd still be broke and homeless, but at least you wouldn't have any debt. How much better would it be on top of that if someone came along and said, not only am I going to pay off your credit card debt, but I also, behind your back, got a hold of your routing number and your account number, and I deposited into your bank account $10 million. That's a credit. See what's happening? The good news isn't just that your debt has been paid. It's that someone got into your bank account and deposited something that wasn't yours. Paul will tell us later in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That in a nutshell is what justification is. It's not just forgiveness, although it is that, and even if it was just that, even if I was just debt-free, hiding in a corner, broke, and, but, uh, but with nothing that I owe God, that would be good enough in itself. But the gospel of justification is more than that. It's that God didn't just wipe away my debt. He took away my debt and deposited into my empty bank account all the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. 
so that when I stand before the Father, I don't stand in shame. I certainly don't stand with a debt against him, but I also don't stand with him, uh, before him broke. I stand before him rich and wealthy in the righteous robes of my Messiah. And when I stand before God, it is as if I had Christ's own resume to show for it. That is the gospel. It's not that you're empty-handed. It's that you have been given all that belongs to Christ. And so those two things are happening here. The removal of sin, but also the purifying of the sinner, the righteous making of the sinner. And in one fell swoop on the cross, our sins are taken away and they're replaced by the righteousness of God. It's what the old hymn writer called the double cure. You know that hymn, Rock of Ages? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. What's the double cure? What's he talking about? He says it in the next line. Save me from wrath and make me pure. Justification is the double cure. You have been taken. You have, uh, uh, from you has been removed all that you have deserved and you have been given things that you have not deserved. The grace and beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You may say, well, that's fine for you, Christians, that love your words of righteousness and heaven and the cross, but bro, I'm fine. Like, if that's what does it for you, Christians, if that's what gets you through the day is this need to be justified or feel righteous or whatever Christianese word that you, you have that, that makes you feel better, then more power to you, but I'm fine. I don't feel like I need to be justified before God. I'm fine. Yet I want you to examine the words that you're saying with the life that you're living right now. And I want to humbly suggest that that's not true. Even if you're not using some of those words to describe it, you're living, a lot of you are living a life that screams that you desire to be justified. It might not be before God, but it's something some of you, it's your career. You are working in your career so hard. Why? What's driving you? You want to justify your reason for existing. Some of you are doing this, uh, you're living a certain way for the benefit of your parents. You want to show them. You want to prove to them. You want to show them that you're uh, the, uh, uh, something that they can be proud of. You're trying to justify yourself before your parents. For others, it's your spouse. For others, it's for your uh, uh, would-be spouse. For others, uh, it's for your children. Uh, perhaps your children, you're doing it for your parents. And the, the list goes on and on. Even if it's not directly pointed towards God, most of us in this room have something that's driving us. We want a reason. We want to know that our lives are full of value, that they're acceptable, that they're worth living, and that there's someone out there that notices and says yes. Paul says there's literally nothing you can do on your own to answer what's burning inside of you. But in Christ, that right standing is made available. Paul writes this whole section of scripture to say, hey, Abraham wasn't close to God because he was circumcised, that didn't come yet. He wasn't close to God because he obeyed the law, that didn't come yet either. It wasn't because he was part of the right family or went to the right church or did the right things. Abraham, the poster child of righteousness, was righteous by faith in God. 
by a sheer act of God's grace and love. He was justified. And the point of this is that you can be too through Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter would say, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. God bringing lost creation back in union with him. You may say, but why the resurrection? You explain this whole time about Jesus' death, but why the resurrection? Simply put, the resurrection is what makes Jesus different, makes Jesus' death different than your own. How many people do you know have died for just causes? How many of you have known people or heard about people who have died for a good thing? How many of their deaths have saved or altered the course of your life? Probably none of them. I've heard it said that the cross without the resurrection is merely martyrdom. And that's all we can ever hope to accomplish with our own deaths. Martyrdom and maybe a good memory. Jesus' resurrection vindicates all his claims above everyone who ever, uh, who's ever died, showing him to have true power over sin, death, and shame. In fact, Paul would open with this in his uh, letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. He's more than just a martyr. He is the Son of the living God. And his resurrection is proof that his death is effective in your life. I want to end with one thing. How do you experience the happiness of God? You know what I said to Abby all of those times that she looked at me and in her crocodile tears said, how do I make you happy, Dad? You have to be happy. You're supposed to be happy. How do I make you happy? There's one time where I almost lost it because of the nature of what she was saying to me. I was like, Abby, I'm already happy. You're my daughter. There's literally nothing you could do right now or undo to change my love for you. I'm already happy with you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus already made the Father happy. Do you know when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism, a voice pierced through the darkness in heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? God is already happy. In fact, at the risk of being irreverent, I'd like to call him a little giddy at times. Jesus made the Father happy. And there is nothing you can offer to change that. And in God's kingdom, Trust is our only currency. If you want to know a happy God, a God that doesn't want to just beat you over the head for the things that you have done wrong, but willingly desires for you to run into his arms, you want to know how to access that close relationship with him? You have to, like Abraham, come to the end of yourself and put your trust in him. As Paul will end by saying, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord. Years ago, a couple, uh, couple believers 
in a desire to be free from their addictions, started uh, a group for addicts that many of you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And in those early years, they desired, the, the founders desired strictly to base their, what is now called the 12 Steps, on biblical principles. They looked at the gospel and they desired, if this can work for people, certainly it can work for alcoholics. And they outlined 12 steps. And if you've ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know that they are uh, made to be in succession, meaning you can't go to the 12th step without working through the first one. You know what the first one is? Admit that you're powerless. You know what the second step is? Right now, I think it's like recognize a higher power or something else, but the original founders, they were like, recognize that you need God. The first two steps that has so transformed so many people's lives starts with what Paul has been saying since day one. You have to hit a dead end first. And in that dead end, you have to point your eyes upward to where your help comes from. Some of you are listening to this and you're like, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, blah, 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 blah. I've been a Christian for 75 years and I don't need another message about the gospel. I I get it. I'm forgiven. I'm justified. The cross. I'm going to take some bread. It's going to be awesome. Then I'll go and eat lunch. I'm a seasoned Christian. I need something else. No, you're not. You know what I love about the 12 steps that is so pertinent for our lives today? Things that have been pulled out of the Bible itself is that you never stop going back to step one. Even if you got that coin that's like, I've been 50 years sober, you never forget step one. I am powerless. And left to myself, I will stumble back into the same mess that I came from. I am absolutely powerless to save myself, and I recognize that I need someone else to intervene. You think you're a seasoned Christian? You want to prove your seasonedness? Keep going back to what Paul has been preaching. Go back to that dead end, admitting to yourself, there's absolutely nothing I can do to lift myself up. I need to turn to God and turn to God and turn to God. And some of you are in this room right now hiding from your past. You don't want the resurrection to to affect your past. You want to ignore your past and start over. I want to challenge you in light of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to stop ignoring the things that you have done in your past. Perhaps they are a source of embarrassment for you. Perhaps you are ashamed of them. Today, maybe for the first time ever, I want you to stare into your past without any fear or shame. In fact, I want you to bring your past to the altar in all of its ugliness, in all of its tragedy, in all of its humiliation, and I want you to be confronted by the sheer love of Jesus Christ. I want you to bring your whole mess. I want you to bring everything, even the dark places that you won't even tell your your husband or your wife. I want you to bring the dark corners of your life that you won't even admit to yourself, thinking that if you just just, uh, uh, forget about it, maybe it'll go away. I want you to bring your whole mess before God. Roll your cares upon your Savior because he cares for you. And in that dead end, you will experience love like you have never experienced before. There is nothing you can do to pull yourself up. And even if you have gone through this whole cycle and process back in 1985, it is time to start over again today.
Have you revisited the dead end? I want to bring up the worship team this morning as we transition into worship through song and leave you with this. I want you to think about what God has done for you in Christ, that he died, but that he also rose. And I want you to marinate on that truth until that truth begins to make its way beyond your mind where it sometimes just sits stagnant and drips into your heart. You know what? One of my favorite ways to do that is, is through musical worship. There are times when people preach to me and they tell me what I, uh, you know, they tell me the gospel, they tell me the truth, and it makes sense in my mind, but there's something keeping it from getting down there. And there's, you know, for me, this might just be for me personally, but there comes times where I am done reading, I am done being told or instructed, and there is a season where I need to just sit and marinate. And worship for us is obviously a declaration of truth to God. We are telling God, you are great and you are awesome and we love you and thank you for loving us. But there's a side benefit to that. I think in Colossians we're told that we are, we are making melody in our hearts to one another and to God. I love that. Worship is first of all to God, but in a corporate setting, there's a sense in which we are doing it with one another. You know, if you just want to worship God, you can do that in your car. The reason we come together here is to hear each other sing. And there's something that happens to my broken heart when I've gone through a week of shame and humiliation and despair And I come into this building and I hear a few hundred people sing the praises of God. It's as if the gospel is being dripped into my heart by my friends. And I want you to do that today. Whatever you have to do to get yourself into that spot, do it. Allow the gospel as we sing it to make its way into your heart and let the walls come down. God will meet you in the dead end just like he met Abraham. All that he asks for is trust. God is happy and the resurrection is proof. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that as we sing by the power of your manifest spirit, you would do the rest. We know that you care about holiness. We know that you care about change and transformation and following you and living differently. God, I just feel like today you just, you just want to give us a different motive to live. So I pray that here we would find that motive in the beautiful son of the living God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.